You all right? Okay. Thanks. It's great to be here. Let me get my thank yous out of the way. I want to thank my driver and bodyguard, Dave, for bringing me down here from Cleveland. And for Bruce and Richard and Eric that kept in touch with me and made sure I was going to be okay to be here tonight. And they were going to be okay to take care of me tonight. I know how much work goes into doing one of these. So let's give them a round of applause. I'm glad to be here. About a year ago, I was put in a hospital. My lungs crashed. And I don't know if you know this, but when your lungs crash, your heart gets really nervous, you know? <laughs> so I spent five days in the cardiac care unit, and my doctor says, I got COPD. And she says, but don't worry, you got three to five years left. And I thought... Well, hell, I've had judges give me more time than that, you know. <laughs> I told her, I said, you know, I live a day at a time, darling. If you're trying to scare me, it ain't working. Now, I'm pretty sure what I'm going to say up here tonight. I'm just not pretty sure what you're going to hear. There's a story I like to tell. It's a story about a state trooper. And that state trooper, he's sitting on the side of a road waiting for somebody to go by do something wrong, because that's what state troopers do. And sure enough, on this day, a boy came driving by in a pickup truck, and the back of that pickup truck was full of penguins. And that trooper knew something was wrong with that. He pulled him over. He says, son, where are you going with all those penguins in the back of that pickup truck? He said, well, we're not going anywhere, officer. We're just out for a ride. <laughs> he said, well, you can't take penguins for a ride. Take those penguins to the zoo. And he said, yes, sir. Now, the next day, that trooper's in the same spot. Here come that boy one more time. Back of that truck, still full of penguins. But on that day, all those penguins are wearing sunglasses. He pulled them over again. He said, son, I thought I told you to take those penguins to the zoo. He said, well, yes, sir, I did. Today we're going to the beach. Now, we all kind of see and hear things differently, don't we? No, you'd be looking at the same speaker, listening to the same speaker. You're going to hear one thing, I'm going to hear one thing, right? Let me give you an example. There's a room, big room like this. In the middle of that room, there's a table. And in the middle of that table is a $100 bill. Now, standing around that table is the perfect man, the perfect woman, Santa Claus, and the Easter Bunny. And the lights went out. Them lights came back on, that $100 bill was gone. Y'all know who took it, right? Well, we all know it had to be the perfect woman because those other three things don't exist, do they? My name's Tim. I'm an alcoholic. I did not want to be an alcoholic. My daddy was an alcoholic. He's a member of this fellowship. He got sober in 1946. He passed away in 1980. And he only had 10 years of continuous sobriety put together at that time in his life. And what that did for me, it gave me an opportunity to see what an alcoholic was all about to see what alcoholism was all about. 
and also to see what Alcoholics Anonymous was all about. I came from a family where I had six stepfathers. I had 13 stepmothers. I went to over 20 schools. I never got out of the eighth grade. I left home when I was 14 years old. I've had an opportunity in my life to spend time in boys' homes, detention homes, city jails, county jails, workhouses, psych wards, treatment centers, and penitentiaries. I've been on parole. I spent 12 years of my life either on parole, probation, or locked behind some kind of door somewhere. And do you know not one of those things I just talked about are the reasons I came through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. Those were merely the situations that my disease of alcoholism created in my life. But on June 23rd, 1982, I woke up at the bottom. That's the bottom they talk about in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's when you know a loneliness such as few men know. You're at that jumping off place. You're wishing for the end. You can no longer imagine life with or life without alcohol. And that's the bottom. You know, that's not a high bottom. But you know what? It's not a low bottom either. What I'm talking about here tonight is my bottom. And my bottom is the only bottom I ever need to concern myself with in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't ever want to be in a position of my sobriety where I can sit and listen to a speaker speak and I can start thinking things like, you know, maybe I wasn't that bad, huh? As soon as I can sit out there and I can make myself believe I'm different in any way from anybody else in rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, if I can make myself believe I'm unique in any way, then I've got reservations, don't I? There was an old timer in Berea, Ohio, where I got sober. He used to tell me all the time. He said, Tim, if you got reservations, son, you must be going somewhere, huh? <laughs> I like it here. I don't want to go anywhere, man. I had my first drink at 13. I got sick. I blacked out. I passed out. I woke up at the backyard of a lady's house in Rocky River, Ohio. I had my last drink at 30. And I got sick, and I blacked out, and I passed out. And I woke up at home in bed. And you know, that's the only difference where I woke up the next morning. But I know one thing for sure today. I know God wants me in Alcoholics Anonymous. You see, that lady came out of her backyard, back door. She found me in her backyard. She took me in her house. She cleaned me up. She found out who I was, called my mama, and let my mama know I was okay. Seventeen years later, I walked into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was sober about two weeks. I went to a meeting, and that woman was speaking at the meeting. You see, my very first drunk... I found myself in the arms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And she did for me that night all she knew how to do. She was 60 days sober when she found me in her backyard. And what they told her to do at her home group was help a drunk. They didn't tell her only help the old drunks or the young drunks, the white drunks or the black drunks, the male drunks or the female drunks. They told her to help a drunk, period. And that's what she did that night. And do you know I still see that woman at meetings today? She's over 90 years old and over 50 years sober. Do you know what she's doing? 
Man, she's helping drunks. Now, there's two things I ran from most of my life. I'm not crazy about them today. I got a lot of them in my life, it seems, and I still don't like them very much. And those two things are responsibility and authority. Now, I don't know if you all know this, but there's an awful lot of responsibility involved with being responsible. Hmm? And I certainly don't like people telling me I'm supposed to be responsible. And it seemed like in my life, 13, 14 years old, everybody had an idea. Tim, your hair's too long. Tim, your jeans are too tight. The heels on your boots are too high. Everybody had an idea about Tim's life. And nobody asked me. I'm sitting at a family gathering one day. And I heard somebody say this. They said, my daddy, my real daddy was sober. And he was in New Orleans. And on that day, I left home. I knew what my problem was. It wasn't what I was doing or who I was doing it with. If I could get my real father in my life, it would be okay. I made my way to New Orleans. I contacted Alcoholics Anonymous. They found my daddy for me, and they put us together. And all of a sudden, I had a father, and he had a son. And we tried to be those two things, but neither one of us Ever been either of those two things before? We did the best we could. It just didn't work out. And after about 30 or 40 days, my daddy started drinking again. And I found something else out. You see, I used to come home and fall into my mother's living room and pass out. And the next morning, she'd scream at me. She'd say, son, don't drink. You'll get what your father has. But I didn't know what he had. I never saw him drink before. I didn't know what she was trying to keep me from getting, but I watched him drink. I watched him get drunk. I watched him go into the DTs, and I watched the people from Bridge House in New Orleans come away and put my daddy in Bridge House. And I made a decision on that day, I'm not going to be an alcoholic. I am not going to end up like my daddy ended up. And I didn't have another drink for the next four years. I really didn't do much anything for the next four years. I just traveled all around this country. I hitchhiked. If I didn't like it in Los Angeles, I'd go to Houston. Houston didn't please me. It was off to Miami. And here I was. See, I I was in the city of New Orleans. I got the rest of my life to do whatever it is I think I want to do. I got no responsibility. I've got no authority. And it's 1966, huh? Man, I guess I was a hippie. But I had four good years. My expectations were met. The big book tells me this, that my expectations are inversely proportional to my serenity level. And I don't know about you, but I know about me. I know that if I get exactly what I think I'm supposed to have, exactly when I think I'm supposed to have it, (laughs) I'm a pretty happy guy, huh? But as soon as I don't, my expectations aren't met and my serenity level goes down. I'm in Berkeley, California, and I don't want to play anymore. I want some stuff. You know the stuff. Stuff on the billboards that tell me, if you drive this kind of car, you're okay. If you live in that kind of neighborhood, you're okay. If you wear these kind of clothes, then you're okay. And all of a sudden, I want to be okay. So me and a buddy of mine left Berkeley, California. And I'm coming home to Cleveland. 
because I want some stuff. I want to be okay. We got a ride out of California into Utah. We got a ride into the middle of Utah. We got a ride into the middle of nowhere, Utah. <laughs> this guy drops us off at an off-ramp that has nothing. No houses, no convenience stores, no gas stations, no nothing. Just a road that goes up farther into the mountains in the middle of nowhere, Utah. And that's where we slept that night. We got up in the morning. It was freezing in those mountains. Walked down to the bottom of the on-ramp. Seven o'clock in the morning, in the middle of Utah, sitting there all by itself, is a six-pack of Olympia beer. <laughs> Man, I know God wants me an alcoholic. <laughs> I drank three beers. He drank three beers. I told him, you know, if I ever back to Cleveland alive, I'm settling down. I'm going to marry the first girl I see. So we all got to have that girl. That's all part of this American dream and being okay. I got back to Cleveland alive. My stepfather wasn't home. I was allowed in the house. I took a shower, changed my clothes, borrowed my mother's car, drove to the corner to buy a pack of cigarettes, picked the young lady up hitchhiking, and we got married. <laughs> we didn't get married that day. But, you know, we might have. But in the state of Ohio, then the male had to be 21, or have parental consent, and the female had to be 18. When I married my first wife, I was 18 and she was 15. This was not a marriage that was made in heaven. We didn't know anything about being a married. We didn't know anything about being in love. I can't tell you to this day if I love that woman. I can tell you this, though. I live in my brother's van in the driveway of my parents' home. Because I haven't been allowed in her house since I'm 14. She lives wherever she can. Because there's stuff going on in her house she doesn't want to go back to. And that brought us together. You see, we weren't alone anymore. And that was enough. Just not to be alone anymore. And it was a simple marriage. I got up in the morning, I got drunk. She got up in the morning, she got drunk. And then we beat each other up. And we did that one day at a time for about seven years. But I had seven years, I was away a lot. I travel a lot. I travel a lot then, I travel a lot now. But this part of my life was just a little different. I'd walk into a room kind of like this room. There'd be a man sitting in the front of the room. He'd have a long black coat on. Every time he did this, I went somewhere. I was always in trouble, man. Seemed like 12 years of my life, I only did two things. I got ready to go to jail, and I got ready to come home from being in jail. Now, I wasn't a violent criminal. Oh, no, I was a stupid criminal. I got arrested for stupid stuff. I got arrested for stuff like verbal abuse of a police officer. It's in a little city called Parma, Ohio. I got arrested for obscene finger language to a police officer. <laughs> and that was in Parma, Ohio. Now, I don't know about the rest of y'all. If you don't know anything about Parma, Ohio, I'm going to tell you this. They got no sense of humor, man, in Parma, Ohio. I was at a meeting. I was about two years sober. 
I don't know about anybody else, two years sober, I'll bet you I was the smartest person in Alcoholics Anonymous for two years sober. You ever go to a meeting and hear somebody say something? You know you've heard that same person say that same thing 50 times, right? But now, all of a sudden, it makes sense. I went to a meeting, there was a long timer talking. I miss him. His name was Vic. And he was, he was my guy. Vic was my guy. You got one? See, Vic was the guy, if I got to the meeting and I saw him in the room, I knew it was going to be okay. He didn't have to see me. He didn't even have to know I was there. We didn't have to talk to each other. But if I saw Vic in the room, I knew it was going to be okay. Vic stood up here that night and he did, he said this. He said, I've been arrested 63 times, huh? I wasn't a good criminal. Man, I picked right up on that. I know I've been charged with 63 crimes. I wasn't a good criminal. People that did what I did, get caught as often as I got caught, weren't real good at what they're doing. I learned something else in that verbal abuse case of a police officer. I decided to represent myself in that case. That's not funny. No, I saw enough Perry Mason judge for I can do this. I went to court, called witnesses, cross-examined witnesses, gave my final arguments to the judge. Y'all know what I found out, right? I'm not a very good attorney either, man. Back to the workhouse. You see, this is just how my life was going. 1975, I stood in front of a judge in that old lakeside courthouse in downtown Cleveland, and he sentenced me to 20 to 40 years in the penitentiary. And I took a big sigh of relief on that day. I felt good on that day. Felt better than I had in a long time on that day. I can hear my wife and my mother in the back of the courtroom. They're crying. They don't think I should go away, and they don't want me to go for that long. But they don't know what I know. You see, I know this. I know they can't send me anywhere that's going to hurt me as much as I've already hurt myself. And that judge, he has some crazy idea thinking that he can punish me more than I've already punished myself. And I'm ready to go anywhere, man, where I might have a better chance. 1975 or 1976, the law has changed in Ohio. My sentence went from a 20 to 40 to a 1 to 10. And three years later, they sent me home. But when I got home, all my stuff was gone. All the stuff I had to have to show you. So you'd see I had it, and you'd know the only people that had it were okay, so you could tell me I was okay. My wife was gone, my car, my jewelry, my motorcycle. Everything was gone. There was nothing left but me. And I didn't do anything for the next 30 or 40 days but drink. I got as drunk as I could, blacked out as I could, passed out as I could, as many times that day as I needed to, I crawled into a bottle of alcohol. And you know, I never once crawled into a bottle of alcohol to hide from you. I never crawled into a bottle of alcohol to hide from them. I got as drunk as I could, passed out as I could, blacked out as I could. As many times that day as I needed to, I crawled into that bottle to hide from me. 
You see, I knew what I was. I was an ex-con. I was an ex-husband. I was an ex-brother, and I was an ex-son. I failed at everything I tried to do. But if I was drunk enough, I didn't have to look. Finally, a friend of mine came over and took me out. Took me to the flats in Cleveland. And it's a long time before they ruined the flats in Cleveland. They yuppied it all up. Flats used to be a really nice place to go get drunk. Huh? You drank Jim Beam bourbon and Pash Blue Ribbon beer. And all the barroom floors were flooded. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful place. You never went to the flats on your boat. You didn't go to the flats to have dinner. And you certainly never went to the flats to drink something that came from something called the microbrewery. <laughs> we walked into a little bar called the Pirate's Cove. My cousin's band was playing that night. They are playing a Marshall Tucker song. I'm drinking past Blue Ribbon beer and I'm about half in the bag. And this pretty little girl walked past me. And she smiled at me. You know, I smiled right back at her. That was her. That was my future ex-wife. <laughs> who shall heretofore be known as the plaintiff. That's who that was. <laughs> I got to tell you about my second wife. She came into my home. She had stuff. I think I had this stuff. I just don't know where it was. She brought things with her like honesty. She brought unselfishness. She brought purity. And she brought love. These are the things she had with her. Four years later, she left. She only took one thing with her. And that's the disease of alcoholism. I am not the only one I hurt when I pick up a drink. I touch a lot of lives, and I know that today. We tried. For two years, I tried. I did the best I could. I did everything right, I thought. I tried to live the right way. And after two years, I'm sitting on my couch drunk, and I'm surveying my dynasty, huh? After two years. You know, I don't have a house on the lake. I don't have a Porsche in the driveway. I don't wear the right kind of clothes or belong to the right kind of clubs after two years. So I came to a conclusion that night that those things are for other people. I'm just one of the people that's not supposed to have them. And I got up the next morning, called my boss, and quit my job. My wife lasted for another two years. And then she just had to go. And this is my life at 30 years old. You know those get-togethers we have? We got one coming Thanksgiving, huh? We're going to go somewhere, right? We'll sit at a table. We'll hold hands. We'll say grace. We'll share a meal with each other. When we're done eating, we're just going to hang out and share what's going on in each other's lives. This is the way it works at my house. I pull into my parents' driveway and I blow the horn. When they hear the horn inside... My little brother will come out of the back door. I'll have a paper plate in his hand wrapped in tinfoil. And he'll hand me my holiday meal. And I'm allowed to eat my holiday meal in my car in my parents' driveway with a plastic fork and a plastic knife and a paper napkin. I can't sit at their table. 
I can't hold their hands and say grace. And they don't want me to share anything with them that's going on in my life at that time. But I don't want you to think for one minute that they stopped loving me. Not even as much. They realized every time they reached down and stopped me from hitting my bottom, every time they allowed me to be not to be responsible for my own actions, that they were killing me. You see, my parents loved me so much, they let me go. I don't have any children. I can only imagine how much love that must take. Huh? June 23, 1982, I woke up at the bottom I told you about. And I don't know what to do. And when I don't know what to do in my life, I always did the same thing. I made a phone call. I think I made that phone call a hundred times or a thousand times. It was simple. It was, Mom, help. And my mom came. I couldn't go to her, but she would come to me. She walked in my little house. I'm kneeling on the living room floor. I'm shaking apart. I have hepatitis, and I weigh 112 pounds. And the first words out of my mother's mouth were, I'll kill her for doing this to you. Alcoholism. This is a family disease. My mother has it too. Blaming others is a big part of this disease. I found myself in an emergency room. I got a doctor play on my liver. He says, son, you got an alcohol problem. I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> Not me. I told you all I didn't want to be an alcoholic. We argued back and forth about what I wanted to be, didn't want to be. He said, I don't care. He said, if you don't quit drinking, son, you're going to die. And I heard him say that. And I spent the next 10 days in a psych ward on the east side of Cleveland. The first three in restraints. Not four-point restraints, just some straps across me. I'm powerless over alcohol. My life had become unmanageable. Now that sounded just a little bit like step one, didn't it? Little bit. Now I got a psychiatrist in my psych ward. I got the happiest psychiatrist on earth, man, in my psych ward. And he comes to visit me every morning. Tim, how you doing? Good to see you. Isn't it a marvelous day? See, I don't know about the rest of y'all. Seven o'clock in the morning, in a psych ward, on the east side of Cleveland, tied to the bed. I'm not real spiritual. It's just, I'm just not. And I told him what I thought, and you know what? He just did what psychiatrists do. Y'all know what they do. They write in their charts. They nod their heads. That's what they do. Then they go away. And on the third day, he came into my room, and I don't want to forget this day. He put his chart in the windowsill. He took the straps off across me, and he sat on my bed. He said, Tim, I can't make your wife come home. I don't have a job to give you. I'm certainly not going to make a house payment for you. But if you never want to take another drink, as long as you live, 
I can tell you how to do that. One day at a time. You see, this psychiatrist was a recovering member of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I know God wants me here. Seven days later, and that's when it became step one. Because all of a sudden, it wasn't I'm powerless over alcohol, that my life had become unmanageable. He shared a little bit of his story with me. I shared a little bit of my story with him. And all of a sudden, it became we. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And I know without the we, oh, buddy, I don't have a chance, man. Seven days later, he sent me home. He gave me my prescription, the most valuable thing anybody's ever given me. He gave me a meeting schedule to Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, when you get home, you do two things. You go to a meeting. When you get to the meeting, you get a sponsor. And I got home, and I didn't know what to do. And I told you all what I'd do, and I don't know what to do. I called my mama. I said, hey, Ma, I need to go to an AA meeting. She said, I'll come get you. See, my mom knows all about Alcoholics Anonymous. She went to meetings in the 40s and the 50s with my daddy. There's been a big book in my house as long as I can remember. And she dropped me on your doorstep. That was July 4th, 1982. She left me with a little advice I'll share with you. She said, I'm not coming back to get you. You go to the people in the front table, you tell them you're new. You don't have a car, you don't have a driver's license, you need a ride home. And you stay away from the women in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I paid attention to just about half of my mama's advice, but I got a sponsor that night. He gave me stuff to do. His wife was a chairperson. She handed me the traditions, asked me if I'd read them, and I backed up. I said, geez, I don't know, honey. You know, they just took the straps off me. You might want to find someone else to do that. And he just looked at me. You know how they look at you. He said, here's your first lesson, Tim. You never say no to Alcoholics Anonymous. No matter what the request is, the answer is yes. That's all you're ever going to need to know about that. Then he said, if you sat at a table and you used a chair, put the chair away. If you had a coffee cup, throw the coffee cup away. If you used an ashtray, now this is a long time ago when AA was civilized, He said, you empty it. He said, I want you to read one page in the big book every day. Don't turn the page until tomorrow. Read that page as many times you want to or think you need to on that day. Do not turn the page until tomorrow. And just maybe in 164 days, you might know something about the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, if you're not praying, we're going to start this way. You're going to take three words your mama taught you when you were a little boy. You're going to get up in the morning and kneel down, and you'll say, please. You get up the next, you'll get up, you go about your day, and at the end of your day, you're going to kneel back down, and you're going to say, thank you. Please and thank you. My mama taught me those words when I was a little boy. Do you know what she called them? Magic words. 
What's the magic word, Timmy? No matter what I wanted, it was, what's the magic word? I had no idea how much magic those words held till I came here and you showed me how to use it. I came to believe by watching you. If I did what you did, I could have what you have. And that's what I did. I went to the meetings you went to. I sat at the tables you sat at. I had cream in my coffee. I don't like cream in my coffee. (laughs) But I wanted what you had. So I did what you did. So I could have it too. I came to believe by watching you my life would change. And then it came to the third step. My sponsor's on the way over. And we're going to do this third step prayer. And I don't know about the rest of y'all. Third step. First thing went through my mind when I saw it. What if it works? (laughs) Man, then what? So he gets there. I said, I'm going to kneel down. Turn my my, my will and my life over to the care of God. He said, that's correct. I said, then what? He said, we don't know. I said, you don't know? No, 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 buddy. You got to do better than that. You got to give me something here. So he did. If you got one, you can understand the third step too. I always have one. It's a penny. And if you look at the back of the penny, you're going to see the Link Memorial. This is a special penny. This penny's from 1918. That's the year my mama was born. And do you know what happens as soon as you turn it over? On the front of the penny it says, In God we trust. And that's the third step. It's not about God's will. It's about mine. Am I willing today to trust God with it? I can tell you I am. And once you can do that, there's another word on the front of that penny. That word's liberty. That's the freedom you can have just by trusting God a day at a time. I started on that fourth step, but you guys are smart enough down here in Kentucky to know that's not one you really rush right into, right? No, no. You really got to take your time with that fourth step because you got to read all them books, huh? We don't have anything in Alcoholics Anonymous, buddy. We got books. We got blue books. We got blue and blue books. We got little blue books. We got little black books, little red books, little green books. We got guides. We got lists. We even got experts in Alcoholics Anonymous today. And if you don't read every one of those books, talk to every old timer on earth, you're going to mess the fourth step up, aren't you? (laughs) There's only one way to do the fourth step wrong. Don't do it. That's the only way you can mess the fourth step up. Don't do it. I read all those books. I talked to every old-timer in Cleveland. I'm sober 36 years. And do you know, I'm still not 100% sure what Mr. Jones's problem is. (laughs) I did a fourth and a fifth. I wrote down what happened. 
I shared with God and another human being why it happened. And then I had to become entirely ready for that stuff to go away. Separate the men from the boys, huh? That's what it says. How hard can this be? I just shared with God and another human being that I'm a sneaky, lying, cheating, arrogant, narcissistic piece of crap. And you want me to get rid of that? (laughs) Seriously. I couldn't do that on my own. I had to humbly ask a power greater myself for help. And he sent me to step eight. My list, I'm looking at it. And I'm looking at this guy over here because my sponsor's on the way over. He's always on the way over, it seems. And this guy over here, you know I did that to him. I don't dispute it. Guilty. Did it. But you know what? He did this to me. I scratched him off the list, man. That's a push. (laughs) We're even. By the time my sponsor gets there, there's no one on my list but my mama. I'm trying to figure a way to get her off the list. He says, you don't get this, do you? I said, I think I'm doing good. What do you mean I don't get it? He said, Tim, their faults will not be discussed. This isn't about them. This is about you. And the first thing you need to do is learn to forgive. Because until you can forgive everybody that ever wronged you, you will never have the right to ask anybody else for forgiveness. I made direct amends to the people I've robbed. Now, before I was halfway through, those promises started coming true. Just like it tells me in the big book. I have that Porsche in the driveway today. I keep a disguise as a Toyota. But (laughs) (laughs) you might see it someday. You might think, man, that's not a Porsche. That's a Toyota, but you got to remember this. You know there's only one person sitting here right now, only one, that's looking out of your eyes. And that's the only person that's ever going to be responsible for what you see. You can see good, or you can see bad. But you got to remember who's looking. Because when I get inside my car... I don't see Toyota. Alcoholics Anonymous is an inside job. I spent most of my life believing if I could make the outside look good enough, hmm, the inside would feel better. Till I came here and you showed me how to work from the inside out. And I don't see Toyota. I see Porsche. Black. Carrera. 4S. Huh? And I hit those power windows. <laughs> I don't know who has your message. Do you? Are you waiting for somebody with 80 years of sobriety? Because maybe, just maybe, the person sent, God sent with your message today isn't even going to get sober. For the next 80 minutes. 
I got a message on the first step about 25 years ago. I was invited to speak in Indiana. And my wife couldn't go with me that weekend, so I took one of my new guys with me. And I didn't want to take my car because I didn't think my car would make it to Indiana. So I took my wife's car. And she was driving a Honda Civic back then. And you know in a Honda Civic, what do you get in a Honda Civic? Four, five hundred miles to a gallon, huh, in a Honda Civic. Seriously, you drive a Honda Civic pretty much from now on. <laughs> Never had to put gas in a Honda Civic. Me and my new guy, we headed for Valparaiso, Indiana. We went underneath the sign that was a while. It said my exit was about five exits away. And I looked at the gas gauge. And the gas gauge said empty. And you know, I'm thinking like, yeah, empty in a real car, maybe. <laughs> but in a Honda Civic empty, you got to have 100 miles left, right? I never gave it another, another thought until we went underneath the sign, said my exit was two miles. And as soon as I went underneath that sign, I ran out of gas. <laughs> if you got a Honda Civic, and it says empty. You know, they're dead serious about that. that. That's exactly what they mean. Now, I coasted for another mile. And I pulled over to the side of the road. And there I was, in the middle of Indiana, out of gas. Got a new guy sitting next to me. You know, I don't even want to turn and look at him. I just spent the better part, about four hours, telling him all about responsibility and stuff like that. <laughs> but I had to do something, right? I couldn't see any Indiana the rest of my life. So I turned and I looked at him. He just grinned. You know how they are. No, they'll stay sober a long time waiting for you to do something wrong just so they can point it out. And he looked up at me and he said, we're powerless, ain't we? <laughs> I said, yeah, you bet we are. I said, what do you think we ought to do about it? He said, well, I think we better admit it. I could have sat there the rest of my life going rum, 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 rum. <laughs> if I never admit there's a problem, there is no reason for me to seek a solution. I don't know who has your message. Are you listening? I take one of the last three words, one of the last word, first words in the last three steps. Today, that's how I live my life. Continue, improve, and practice. Each one of those words is an action word. you got to do something if you want something. My book tells me half measures avail me nothing. It doesn't say half measures avail me half. No, it says nothing. And I don't know about you. Man, I've had so much nothing in my life, I don't want no more. 
I want everything God wants me to have. And I don't even know what that is. But if he wants it for me, I want it to. There's a difference in my life today. I go to the prisons and I talk to the guys in the penitentiaries. I used to do it a lot more. The rules changed in Ohio. Years ago, we'd go and it was like knocking on the door. Hey, we're here. We're going to talk to the guys. Okay, come on in. But all of a sudden now, you've got to fill this application out to get in to see the guys in the penitentiaries. I'm going to tell you, never in my life have I had to fill out an application to get into a penitentiary. <laughs> oh, no, I was pre-approved all the time when I got there. I was giving a talk in our, uh, one of our correctional institutes, and a guy came up to me after the meeting, and he said, can I call you? I said, yeah, you call me. See, I forgot, when you're in a penitentiary, you've got to call collect. <laughs> but I'll accept a collect phone call in my life today, and I want to tell you why. Because on April 10th, 1989, I walked into a meeting, and there was a young lady speaking at that meeting that night. And I don't know what your sponsor told you. My sponsor told me this a lot. So I was throwing these one-liners at me. Huh? He said, Tim, if you go to a meeting and you hear something you like, take it home. <laughs> and on October 16th, 1993, we got married. <laughs> I married a young lady in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Her name's Mary. Last month, we celebrated 25 years of marriage. <laughs> I married a very intelligent woman in Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Very educated. My wife has more letters after her name then I got in my name. Oh, she got a BA. She got an MA. She got an MACT. She was ABD. Then she got a PhD. And then she got my personal favorite. That would be a JOB. <laughs> One of my new guys asked me once, he said, doesn't that intimidate you? That your wife is so educated, your wife's so intelligent, doesn't that intimidate you? And I stopped thinking about it for a minute, because I never had before. And I said, no, I'm not intimidated by my wife's accomplishments. I'm proud. I'm proud of my wife's accomplishments. Because, you see, 30 years ago, she came through that door. And she didn't have any letters after her name. But because of a book called Alcoholics Anonymous, the women at her home group, and a God of her understanding that told her, once you come through that door, you can be anything you want to be if you're willing to do the work. She worked hard, she accomplished. I can't be intimidated by that, only proud. I'm proud just to be a member of something that can make that happen, huh? I'm so proud I got new license plates for my car. You know those vanity plates? They got those in Kentucky. 
Oh, man, we got them in Ohio. Those are the stupidest things I ever saw in my life. But I got some. <laughs> you know what my license plates say? They say, Ph.D., G.E.D. <laughs> That's right, I got letters after my name, too. <laughs> we had an AA wedding. It started with the serenity prayer and ended with the Lord's Prayer. There was a reading from the 12 and 12 in between. I was reminded on that day of the opportunity I got to make my collect phone calls when I was in the penitentiary. And I'd stand there and dial and dial and dial. You know, I couldn't find one person on this earth that would accept a collect phone call from me. Not one. We invited 320 people to that wedding. You know how many came? Closer to about 360. Hmm? You know how drunks are. What, there's a party? <laughs> they must have just forgot to invite me. That's the difference from then to now. But there's a difference in me. About 15 years ago, my stepfather got sick. He had Alzheimer's. It's a terrible thing to watch. And my mom was having trouble taking care of him by herself. So I, I jumped in to help out. And after he took the doors off the hinges and stole the car and the police were bringing him back, it got to be a dangerous situation, so we found a better place for him. They took really good care of him. It was the old sailor's home in Sandusky, Ohio. It's a beautiful place. And after about eight months, he passed away. And that left me with an 82-year-old mother at home. And Mom, she didn't want to go in any kind of home or anything. She, she wanted to stay in her house. So we had that talk. And I said, Mom, look, the first few years of my life, you changed my diapers. You fed me. You took care of me and cleaned up my messes. If I have to do that for you, the last few years of your life, I would be more than happy to do that. And she looked at me as only and said as only a mother could say. She said, the first few years of your life. <laughs> the first 30 years of your life. Mom didn't have to go anywhere. I had a woman who took care of her during the day, and I went at night. And I got her dinner ready and cleaned her up, put her pajamas on, and got her in bed. And then it would be time to go to a meeting. And I'd give her a kiss on her forehead, and I'd say, Mom, I love you. I'm going to a meeting. When we tell somebody we love them, what would we like to hear? I love you too, huh? Yeah, I love you too. That's what we'd like to hear. On one particular night, I think this is the most valuable thing my mother ever said to me. I went back and I gave her a kiss on her forehead. I said, Mama, it's time to go to a meeting. I love you. And she didn't say I love you too. She said something much, much more important. She said, I know you do. I know you do. People should know we love them. 
long before we have to tell them. Don't let that thought go through your head that maybe I should call them, maybe I should check up on them, maybe I should stop by. It's really hard to make amends at the funeral home. June 1st, uh, 2005, I was kneeling next to my mother's bed, and I was holding her hand. And at 4.45 on that afternoon, the angels came. They took her hand from mine, and they put it in God's. And God said, I got this. And I learned something that day, something you taught me. I learned to let go and to let God. The real difference in my life is this. On the weekends when I'm at home and the weather's permitting, I go to the cemetery and I put flowers on my mama's grave. I'd like to be able to tell you she sees me. I can't prove that yet. Do you know why I put flowers on my mother's grave? Because I said I would. Because I said I would. That's the difference. I'm accountable today. I'm responsible today. I'm where I say I'm going to be today. And that's the big difference in me. We got a lot of purposes in Alcoholics Anonymous, don't we? We got a primary purpose. We have a singleness of purpose. My favorite's always been our main purpose to fit myself, to be of maximum use to my God and to those about me. Not just here, no, everywhere. Remember, what you do today between the serenity prayer and the Lord's Prayer, it's not as important as what you're going to do today between the Lord's Prayer and the serenity prayer. Thank you so very much for having me tonight.